This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. A lot to talk about on the political realm, and, and usually for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, Parliament goes back to work today, and one of the things they're going to talk about is uh, tougher uh, legislation to deal with sexual harassment. Uh, not a moment too soon, because over the weekend, uh, still more fallout from what's happening here in the province of Ontario. Last week, as you know, Ontario Progressive Conservative leader Patrick Brown stepped down amid allegations of sexual misconduct. Uh, and there was a bloodletting that went on because a number of the executives, uh, some resigned even before Brown stepped down. Some others were essentially booted out of office after that. And then over the weekend, we found out that the party president, Rick Dykstra, also has stepped down in the light of accusations about sexual misconduct in his particular case. All this leaves, and we'll talk about that element of it in, in just a little while, but all of this leaves the party itself wondering what's going on, especially in light of the fact that uh, in just a few short months, June the 7th to be specific, there's a provincial election. And all the polls seem to indicate that the PCs were probably going to win. It was going to be pretty tight, but they had a, um, some polls anyway, pretty comfortable lead. What's this going to do? I mean, <laughs> a party without a leader? That's going to be problematic. Joining us to talk about this is Richard Brennan, long time, uh, of course, a writer, political writer for the Toronto Star who covered uh, Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for so many years, and always a welcome guest. Richard, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you here today. Hi, Bill. How's it going? Uh, better than a lot of other guys over at Queen's Park these days. Well, that's what, what a schmazzle. Um I, I just want to say that we, uh, we talked, uh, last time we talked, I said that uh, Vic Fidelity would, would be the interim leader, and guess what? <laughs> I, <laughs> He's the interim leader. I think you bet a yellow tie on that, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, but but well, even that, just, even that's got its own little bit of political intrigue, though. I mean, Andrew, when you look at what, because Fidelity really wants the gig. I mean, and he's he's already said he wants to run for the leadership. He wants to lead the party in the election. But they still said, well, you're the interim leader for now. Well, okay, well, that's all he is. I, I mean, they've said that they're going to have a leadership race, and quite frankly, I think that was a smart thing to do. I know it's a tight timeline, but they will get attention. And, and earned media that they would have never gotten if they if they didn't agree to have a, a leadership. It's going to spark some excitement in the party. I, I, there will be a focus on them that wouldn't have been otherwise. I, I disagree with a lot of my co- uh, former colleagues that, you know, they're saying, oh, this is crazy, but I, I don't think so. I think they will benefit from it. Well, especially if some of the people that are rumored to be interested actually throw their hat in the ring. I mean, uh, the Doug Fords, I've heard John Tory's name being bandied about. Caroline Mulrooney obviously is uh, dancing around the issue, but it looks like she's going to go into this. Uh, those are all folks from outside the caucus as it stands right now. And they're the ones that seem to be the favorites. And, of course, we haven't even talked about people like Christine Elliott and some of the other former cabinet ministers. And uh, Rob Phillips, a long time, uh, you know, uh, backroom and associated uh, with uh, the party, is uh, he he got the nomination in Oshawa, and he I'm so I know that he's certainly interested. I I don't put two cents on on Doug Ford's uh, throwing his hat in the ring. Uh, every what isn't he going to run for? And I I just I don't put much credit to that. Well, he's talked about that even before this situation rose, about wanting to run for the, the party leadership. Now, that was back in the days of Tim Hudak, and everybody was taking shots at Tim back in those days. But uh, uh, it's, it's out there, and you know he's he's going to try to mobilize Ford Nation. Yeah, well, he said that before, and he said he's going to run for mayor, and he's going to do this, he's going to do that. So I just think he likes to hear himself talk, quite frankly. Well, it's uh-huh. an interesting situation. I know our friend Steve Pakin 
uh, floated the idea of John Tory uh, late last week. Now, I'm sure Steve wasn't the first guy to think about that, but he, he kind of put it out there on the table. And we're told now that there's a, there's a lot of pressure for moderate uh, Tories to have John Tory run for the leadership. But boy, do you give up a gig like mayor of Toronto to take on something like this? I can tell you right now, and I'll bet another yellow tie on it, uh, that John Tory will not run. He he likes being mayor, and I think that ship has sailed in terms of the provincial leader. No, so I, I, I discount that one as well, quite frankly. Well, the, you know, you look at what might happen and the way the dominoes could line up. I mean, if Tory were to do that, and by the way, I agree, I don't think he is going to do it, uh, then all of a sudden Doug Ford's going to run for mayor, and I don't know if he wants to do that to Toronto. I mean, he's I, nobody's safe in politics, for anything we've learned over the years, it's yep. that. But, but Tory seems to be in a pretty good place uh, heading into the municipal elections at the end of the year. Yeah, oh. Um, oh, absolutely. I, I, well, there's no question he's going to get back in his mayor. Uh, sure, he has his distractors, as every mayor does, but the people are pretty happy with the job he's doing. There's no question about that. So so you're not so crazy about the idea of Ford, and you think that might just be bluster. What about yeah, Carolyn Mulroney? Please talk to us about her. We don't know a whole lot about her. I mean, she's the daughter of a former prime minister, of course, Brian Mulroney. Uh, I hear she's bright, she's articulate, but uh, you know, when you look at the CV, there's not a whole lot there as elected officials. It's a blank page at this point. No, I no nobody doubts uh, uh, Ms. Mulroney's uh, you know acumen in terms of the pol- like kind of a, the outside of political politics, but she doesn't have the chops. She doesn't have the kind of experience that you you need to be leader. You have to understand the party you have to understand the province and the politics thereof and and she she doesn't have that will she have it absolutely but it it's not going to work right now i mean there may be a temptation to get a big name and a high profile name but if they're going to get the kind of publicity that you're anticipating out of a leadership race is that really even necessary i don't think so i think just getting a new face um a lot of people just truly disliked brown and you could you could tell that when the you know the entire caucus got together and said you need to leave and you need to leave right now and i think uh vic's done a good job of you know sweeping a lot of the the you know the brown brown acolytes out of out of the office now and i see that dykstra has quit as re, uh because of accusations that are now coming out of when he when he was uh conservative MP in Ottawa. So a lot of those people are gone now. It's, it's a pretty good uh, house cleaning, and that's what you need to do. You don't want, you don't want the, the kind of stench of the, the previous leaders, you know, problems and, and, you know, associated incidents to sully the, the next leader and whoever that might be, and it could well be Vic Fidelia. I'm not saying Vic's out of the picture by any stretch of imagination. What about that element of this? And I mentioned this in my commentary earlier this morning. Uh, The more we find out about what's going on in the whispers, and you guys, you and uh, talked to us about that on Friday. Alan Carter from Global mentioned the same sorts of things, uh, Richard, that 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 was out there and people kind of knew about uh, about Patrick Brown and some of those stories. That It sounds more and more like this whole thing was an inside job, that it was the party themselves that may have orchestrated this. Well, I certainly lean towards that, and other people say I'm crazy when that's another story. But, I mean, they've, been, um, they've been saying that for years, though. So. That, <laughs> that rolls off your back, doesn't it? <laughs> and, but the thing, I, yeah, you got it. It really, you know, you got, you got to look at it this way. 
we were, you know, we're months away from a uh, provincial election. And a lot of the polls, not all of them, a lot of them, you know, had the uh, progressive conservatives leading by, by quite a bit. But other polls had them neck and neck. Well, you can't possibly, with months to go, have that kind of close contest. And I think people just, you know, I think people on the inside of the party saw that it's a, it was a little too close, had heard the rumors, and, you know, and somebody moved on it. And, and Brown's gone. And I think that's, believe me, there was a lot of glee when he was. Well, just when you look at the way things have unfolded in the last couple of days, um, uh, it, it just seems as if more than one or two candidates were ready to just step right over the body and start carrying on and saying, okay, I'm, I'm willing to take the reins right now. Uh, which which kind of tells me that some people seem to know that this was going to happen. Nobody seemed to be caught on by surprise by this, at least not in the party anyway. Yeah, I, think, I think it's going to hurt uh, Vic, and it's not a big deal. But he kind of pulled a General Hague and said, I'm in charge. Yeah. Well, hold on. You're just interim leader. He said, well, no, I'm leader. Well, it's semantics, I guess. But the point is, you're just interim leader. I think he absolutely will run, and I think he'll probably have a good chance at it. He's, he's a red Tory. And I, you know, that is what this party right now needs. It doesn't need a, a right of center a bunch running the joint. Well, that's an interesting sidebar issue to this uh, because of the way that the the PCs were moving, and you know, they just established their policy a couple of weeks ago, just before Christmas, and and uh, that raised a few eyebrows because it was far more left. I shouldn't say left leaning, but it was more to the center anyway from the political spectrum. Even even you know, adopting some of the liberal policies about minimum wage, although they didn't want to carry it past the the current one. Uh, do you blow that up now if a guy like Doug Ford or somebody of that ilk decides that they want to move the party back to the extreme right? Well, if they do, it, 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 it's, it's folly as far as I'm concerned. It, it, it really, it, it's, that is not what this party needs right now. They don't need a, 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 you know, a fellow Trumpite running, running this party by any stretch. And I, I just think that, you know, I, I just don't give any credit towards it all about Ford, Ford uh, throwing his hat in the ring again. I just think he wants to hear, have his name out there. It's going. It's going to be. It's going to be a very interesting time, and people will pay attention. The other thing I'd like to say, Bill, there's this. There, as a result of what's happened, there is a certain amount of public sympathy towards the conservative, progressive conservative. Oh, I've heard that too. Yeah, and and that's good. That's going to augur well for him. So the attention of leadership at race, you know, the, 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 even if it's a modicum of uh, public sympathy. And the desire by people to, quote, throw the bums out, referring to the liberals, for, you know, real or imagined reasons, everything I think is shaping up for the progressive conservatives to become the next, uh, next provincial party to lead this province. There, but, there was but, some, Go ahead. <laughs> but if they pick the wrong person... It all goes. It's all for naught. That's uh, that's the cloud hanging over their head right now. There, there was some chatter when when this story broke in the middle of last week. Of course, that you know, shame on them. And what about due process? And there've been some political commentators and pundits that have written articles about that. But the reality is, as you know from all the years you've been covering this, is, is politics is a blood sport. 
And if you've got a weakness and there are people that are out there to get you, they're going to use that weakness against you. That's what happened here. And and the court of public opinion has always ruled politics. I mean, that's how we elect people, sadly. But that's the reality. Uh, so he's gone. And it was funny that within 24 hours, Richard, I think you guys commented on this on Friday morning in our, our discussion, uh, there was hardly anybody in the PC party that even wanted to talk about Patrick Brown. It wasn't about what happened Wednesday. It was, well, we need a new leader. That's all there is to it. In other words, they they turned the page already. But but like I said, he was very much disliked. There's an, he. I can't express it enough that people, you know, within his own party, just wanted him gone, and they got their way. And you know, I don't think we'll ever. We'll never see we'll never see Brown in the legislature again. And again, rightly or wrongly, but that's that's the reality of it. And I'd like to I I think there's some people out there that you know even even Catherine to you know a certain extent there are people who will be interested to see what she brings to the table. Uh, Rod Phillips, uh, again a veteran of the political process, Vic Fidelli. And who, God knows who else will throw their hat in the ring. But this will be this will be fun to watch. Fidelity's an interesting case. I don't know. We all got a minute or two left here, but uh, he's uh, quite a likable guy uh, from North Bay. Mike Harris's old herf uh, was a former mayor up there. Uh, he's a, a self-made millionaire, I guess, a couple of times over. Uh, and and uh, he seems to be the sort of individual. Quite aside from what his politics might be, you say he's a red Tory, very much like a John Tory, I suppose. But uh, he might just be the proper fit for what the party needs right now. He's certainly popular up north, not just in his, his uh, former city of North Bay, but Sudbury and, and throughout the north. No, he's a, he's quite popular, and that, that's certainly going to help him up there. And, and he just comes across as a decent guy, maybe sometimes a bit too much like a, a car salesman. But, uh, you know, Frank Miller was a car salesman, so, and people liked him. So we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how it goes, but I, I think he will have a chance. There's no question about it. Boy, but I'll tell you, it would be nice to have a lot of people feel this way, at least, to have a fresh face and a fresh voice in there. They say they're going to try to do this sometime in the month of February. That isn't anybody who's got a an inkling of trying to take a run at this thing is not going to have a whole lot of time. No, they've got to they've got to show interest now, and they've got to start scrambling to get support, scrambling to get you know financial support. But that will be the test of the person who can do that. If you can if you can wrap wrap together, you know, a pre victory uh, organization. That's that's going to speak well for you as, as well in terms of support within the party and the public support. We're saying, boy, this person really really put together a, a great uh, contest and and you know and did well. So I, I don't see this. I really don't see this as being a lose for the party. I know others will disagree with me, but I, I don't. Well, it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks coming up uh, at Queen's Park and uh, surroundings, obviously, with what's going on. And we'll be talking about this a lot more. Richard, thanks as always. Great talking to you again today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, former Queen's Park uh, journalist for many, many years, of course, for the Toronto Star. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says that sexual harassment and sexual problems that are going on and sexual misconduct 
is what he called a systemic problem. And when women speak, we have a responsibility to listen to them and to believe them. Uh, the interim leader of the Ontario Progressive Conservative Party, Vic Fideli, made a similar comment and tweeted that just a few minutes ago. It seems as if political leaders are saying the right things about the allegations that are going on these days. But what kind of implications are they really having? And the stories continue, of course. We talked about the president of the uh, Ontario PCs, uh, uh, Rick Dykstra, who stepped down amid allegations. Uh, former federal cabinet minister Kent Hare stepped down last week, although he's still in caucus. Uh, there are more allegations about Hare that have come out over the weekend. On and on it goes. It's interesting to see the reaction to this. Uh, as I say, quite aside from the statements that are being made, it's people's actions on, I guess, and people's attitudes that we need most to be concerned about. Joining us to talk about this is Catherine Gibbons, Anti-Human Trafficking Coordinator and Public Educator with Halton Savas. And uh, first and foremost, thank you so much for taking the time with us, Catherine. Oh, thank you for having me, Bill. Your, your reaction to what you've seen over the last little while, and maybe the reaction to to the news, because uh, I'm, I'm, I got to tell you, Catherine, I'm getting a, a mixed uh, reaction when I see some of the social media comments. I'm seeing a lot of people that say, "Why are you picking on these men? You're ruining their careers," which shocks me. Uh, <laughs> but at the same time, you are seeing people, I think, that are starting to understand what this is all about. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, last week I was on to talk about the general reaction when the Patrick Brown story broke and how um, within the public there was a sentiment of sympathy for his loss of power instead of sympathy for the survivor's bravery to come forward and speak out against him. Um, So, I mean, coming forward is never easy for women. They take so many risks when they do it because they don't have the same sociopolitical capital that men have because we live in a patriarchal society. But how do you, you know, I'm glad you said that, and I think we have to keep saying that, but then you've seen some of the reactions, some of the columnists and pundits that have written columns about this are saying, look, at why did it take these people so long to come forward? If somebody comes trying to hit you on you and you don't like it, you should just say no and walk away. That's, That's easier said than done in a lot of circumstances. Absolutely, and that reaction is symptomatic of rape culture, which is a pervasive belief that uh, women should be blamed for experiencing sexual harassment and sexual assault, um, and it's deeply embedded with victim shaming. So when women do come forward, they're often shamed. Um, they're asked, what were you wearing? Why did you act that way? Why didn't you just say no? And there isn't any attention paid to the specific details of these women's truths that they're sharing. And women coming forward um, is never convenient, especially in this instance. It's not convenient to the political timeline, but that doesn't mean that we need to stop believing these women. We need to carve out spaces for these women um, to make it safer for them to speak their truths. We had uh, one comment on uh, the weekend, uh, and actually it was one of the shows that I was doing, and and that was the reaction. that said, you know, what took them so long to come forward? Why didn't they just say no at the time? And I said, well, consider time and place. And I don't really know who these women are, but we know a little bit about them. That uh, They were high school age, uh, one of them looking to establish herself in, in the business world, uh, to say, hey, guess what happened to me? I've got a problem here, and to actually make allegations like that back in those days, 10, 12 years ago. Let's let's consider what was going on and the attitudes that were in place 10, 12 years ago. You know as well as I do that she never would have been believed. Exactly. And it's really important to reflect on the historical moment in which these things are taking place. It's only recently that women are starting to have a modicum of belief surrounding them when they come forward, thanks to the movements like Me Too and Time's Up. And even still, like we saw with Patrick Brown, um, there's always people are always assuming an ulterior motive. It's never, let's just believe them. It's, well, what if this is happening for a different reason? Or what's really going on here? Um, so we still have a lot of work to do when it comes to believing survivors. Well, because 
that, and again, some of the reaction, well, how much are they getting paid? Who put them up to this? You know, these are the questions that are circulating on, on Twitter and on, on Facebook pages that I'm seeing still today. Exactly. And to me, that's like a, that's absolutely a disgusting um, assumption to make um, for these women that took so much bravery to come forward. And like I said, it's not convenient with the political timeline, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't believe them and that we should. And, it does, and we definitely shouldn't accuse them of having ulterior motives. The movement and, and you know, the hashtag me too and, and some of the other things that have gone on in the last little while. Uh, seem to me in many circles to be uh, the source of, of disgust for an awful lot of people because they say this is just going too far. And, and I wanted to get your comment about that. I'm sure you've heard that reaction and seen that, Catherine, over the last, I was going to say four or five days, but that's really just about the Ontario situation. But this goes all the way back to Bill Cosby and Weinstein and so many others, that, that they seem to have the problem in reverse order here. They seem to think that all these accusations that are coming out these days are, are having a negative impact on, on the show business industry, on the political business, mm-hmm. etc. They're not talking about the people that are coming forward and the impact and what's gone on in their lives over the last number of years. Exactly, and that just kind of speaks to the deep-rooted patriarchal culture that we live in that devalues and does not believe women when they do come forward. And a lot of these instances, people are ignoring the pervasive role of power and how power is playing out. And they're ignoring the fact that women do not share the same socioeconomic, um, the same sociopolitical powers that men do. They don't have the same social capital. So that, I think, is largely being ignored in these movements. And that is part of that reaction. The, oh, that's ruining the business or, oh, this. It's like, well, what about these women's lives? These are real lives that we're talking about. And it shouldn't just be about capital gain or how the business is being affected. It should be, well, what about the lives they're living? Well, and you hear those stories. I mean, at Savis and, and at Sasha here in Hamilton, uh, when we talk to Lenore and, and others about this, they hear the stories. They hear, to go back to our, our example of what happened 10 years ago, they hear what's happened in those subsequent 10 years with their lives. The uh, the the, the feelings, the, the emotions, uh, the problems, the ways that people try to deal with, with those kinds of feelings, and uh, it has an impact on their lives. It absolutely does. Um, And it also, these attitudes that, um, like I said, are symptomatic of rape culture, they also create more silencing mechanisms for women who want to come forward because it reiterates all the risks that are involved. So women are often, like when we talk about the public... um, the public court of judgment. We recent, Recently we were having that discussion about Patrick Brown, but what about the women who are speaking out and the silence breakers? So historically they have always been demonized, they've been shamed, they've been discredited, um, they're not believed, and also when they come forward they risk re-traumatization. So there's all these different things that really go into it. Are, are you seeing or sensing that, that some of these victims that, that maybe have been silent for the longest time are starting to, to gain strength and become empowered when they hear stories like this? Well, I think any time when you have silence breakers, it sort of leads the way for other women to come forward with their stories. Um, So that's definitely a positive from these movements. But I think, having said that, there is still so much work to do, specifically in relation to the Hill, and carving out and making safe spaces for women to thrive. Um, Because the Hill is based in uh, patriarchal traditions, it's historically been a male-dominated arena, there just really isn't that much in place for women coming forward and also for women working there to thrive there. Well, because as we saw with some of the allegations, I mean, these are people that were in quote-unquote junior positions, uh, just starting out, probably not making very much money. I mean, there's a story in the Hill Times this morning that suggests that uh, this may be the tip of the iceberg, that there are going to be many more stories about sexual misconduct that have gone on for quite some time. And and more often than not, 
I know it's a two-way street. Now, we have heard and acknowledged the fact that, that men can also be sexually harassed in the workplace and, and in, in many other circumstances. But the majority of these are men in power abusing women in junior positions and using that threat that, listen, if you want anything to happen to your career, you better do what I say, holding that over their heads. Yeah, exactly. They don't share the same power. Um, and that's something that, I mean, if Trudeau wants to address the systemic nature in which sexual harassment is hap- happening, there needs to be policies and procedures in place to address that discrepancy in power. What about the men himself? Uh, you know, we talk about the, this this gender imbalance here in the power structure itself, which has been going on for quite some time. I know that the Prime Minister tried to address that issue when he named his cabinet, and it was 50% female, and that's, I guess, was uh, supposed to be a step in the right direction. But things like that don't change attitudes. At least they don't do it overnight. Uh, have we moved the yardsticks at all where men now are starting to understand that it's not okay to, to do some things that maybe they thought were generally acceptable in the past? I mean, so much goes into that question. It really comes down to preventative education, teaching men about rape culture, um, well, actually teaching everyone about rape culture, teaching everyone about consent, teaching everyone about power imbalances, how that works. So then I guess the question would be, what is going on on the Hill to address those needs? So Trudeau's comments about the systemic nature of sexual harassment are absolutely correct. However, if he wants to continue to claim a feminist identity, he really needs, and along with everyone on the Hill, need to be cognizant of the fact that spaces within the Canadian political landscape are very difficult for women to navigate, and they still remain underrepresented underrepresented in politics. Um, so the systemic culture that he's referring to, it manifests, it manifests itself in the institutions. Um, so this culture of silencing around sexual harassment, it is manifesting itself in the lack of adequate policies and procedures and avenues for women who have experienced sexual harassment to pursue. I, I hate to use the carrot and stick analogy, but is, uh, how do you move forward? How do you do that, and how do you change those attitudes? Uh, is is it with punishment, with zero tolerance when it comes to these uh, alleged abuses, or or do you just say, okay, this is the long game we have to play here, and it's going to take time to turn people's minds around? I mean, there definitely needs to be a cultural shift. There needs to be prevention through education. There needs to be zero tolerance. There needs to be a multifaceted, robust approach to combating rape culture and silencing mechanisms and victim blaming and all the attendant horrible things that go along with that. So it's, it's, I don't think that there's one simple answer, but there are multiple answers like when we're, that can work together to combat this issue. I, I mean, when you look at, for instance, the current circumstances, what happened in Ottawa, and we talked about Kent Hare just a little while ago, uh, stepped down from cabinet after the allegations surfaced. Uh, there are more allegations about him now, and the question a lot of people on the Hill are asking right now is, why is this guy still in caucus? I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, you're not a minister anymore, but, you know, I, I understand, I know I, I'm going to hear already from people that said, look, you're innocent until proven guilty. We get that. But uh, at the same time, uh, you know, is that sending the right message that, well, yeah, we're outraged by this, but just don't let it happen again. That seems to be the message that we're giving sometimes. Yeah, that's absolutely a small slap on the wrist. Um, and that isn't a very combative approach of uh, a prime minister who claims to have a feminist identity. Um, so I think it's important to understand that sexual harassment, and you know, it knows no political leaning. Um, it isn't easily classified. It can happen to anyone. Um, so, 
yeah, like there needs to be a more, and that's what I'm talking about when I say policy and procedures. Like what examples are we setting? Is there a protocol to follow um, to send the message that this is not okay and that we do believe survivors um, and that more women should be able to speak their truths? What about education in the workplace? Quite aside from what's going on on Parliament Hill, you know, the Prime Minister said he's going to try to do something about that. Uh, I know that Kathleen Wynne's talked about this. Uh, Vic Fideli, the PC leader, Andrea Horvath, they're, they're all saying the right things. And, and that's good, I guess, Catherine, to a point. But in the workplace itself, I mean, it's one thing to say there's Parliament Hill, there's Queen's Park. Uh, what about the uh, the businesses here in Hamilton and Burlington and those workplaces? Because we know that the same sort of thing is going on there. Maybe it doesn't make headlines like the other ones, the, the higher profile names, but it still exists. And I'm, I'm sure that there are victims right now that are listening to this thinking, what about me? What, what, what choices do I have and what power do I have to do something about it? Absolutely. And I mean that, I mean, you're speaking to the performative nature of politics, how we say one thing, but we don't always follow up on it, because in this case, it would mean relinquishing power um, and really committing to making, to creating a shift in the culture. Um, in terms for a more local level, I mean, we can talk about how um, such a high number of sexual assault cases go unfounded by the police. Um, and that just speaks to how deeply rape culture is. It's, it has permeated the bedrock of our society. So we don't believe women. There aren't things in place to help women feel safe um, because we live in a patriarchal society, so it reflects the needs of men. Maybe we start with a definition. Isn't that always the first step in an education process about it, what it is we're talking about? Because when I hear some of the conversations that are going on now, the the, the big difference and, and the, the thing that I think seems to be the first stumbling block is there are some men who don't quite understand what we mean when we use phrases like sexual harassment. Uh, and, and sexual misconduct, that, hey, it's just a tap on the behind. What's the problem with that? Or, hey, you know, I like to hug everybody. Why can't you get used to that? Uh, and they don't exactly. see that that's wrong. They don't see that that's part of the problem. Exactly. So, I mean, we can start with that. Uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault um, is just the unwanted sexual advances or remarks um, against anyone. So, and I mean, with even within discourses of sexual assault that we've seen in the media recently, there is... Um, a leaning towards classifying it to different degrees. Yeah. But that ignores the severity of the, these experiences that women go through. So to classify it is to say, well, this isn't as bad or this isn't as bad. It's a justifying mechanism. Like sexual assault, sexual misconduct, sexual harassment, it's all bad. And even when we use words like sexual misconduct, we're undermining the severity of what truly happened because we want to stay away from the messy work that is um, dealing with it. Well, sure, and, and, and we're all guilty of that, I guess, when we use words like that. Maybe we're trying to clean it up a little bit and sanitize it, but you're absolutely right. That dulls the, uh, I, I guess, the impact uh, of, it with, of the acts and, and, you know, the rationalization, I guess, that goes on in some circles. Like, well, it's not like we had intercourse. You know, we, just, mm -hmm. we were just hugging a little bit, and that's me. And, and the old phrase, and, you know, obviously the president of the United States uses this phrase, and I guess others jump on board. I'm just, it's me being me. Uh, and they use that as an excuse and say, well, that's just the way I am. Exactly, and we have to keep in mind that the circumstances of assault can differentiate, yet the thing that they have in common is that they are all assault and they all lack consent. It's really important to understand consent in these situations. How do you find, as, as, with your work with Savas, uh, businesses cluing into this? I mean, are, are HR departments more cognizant of this? Or are there educational programs going on within the workplace to, to try to get that message across? I mean, there is, there has definitely been um, some leaning towards that, but like I said, there's still so much more work to do. This is a very new movement. Um, this is a very, this is a, there's 
a very fresh recognition of these needs going on. Um, So like you said, local businesses, local service providers, they still have a lot to do in terms of preventative education and implementing workshops or programs that educate their workforce on, you know, what are healthy relationships, what is consent, um, what is rape culture, what is misogyny, and how do all these things play together in how we treat and understand women. I, I mean, the numbers here just indicate to us that, uh, that boy, we've still got a long way to go. You know, we've talked about gender parity, and I know that that's been talked about a number of times. But uh, you look at the statistics, uh, and I know you see these all the time, Catherine. For instance, the number of women in, in on boards of directors or running as CEOs of major companies, uh, those numbers are still paltry uh, compared to what we would hope they would be by this stage. And and maybe it starts right there. Maybe the fact is, is it's not front of mind. We're not, you know, we're talking the talk, but we're not walking the walk yet. Mm-hmm, definitely. There's, there is work to be done. I am in complete agreement with that. Where do we go from here with these stories and, and the implication that there's going to be a lot more like this? Uh, does, does this move the F forward? Do you notice that there are more women now that are saying it's about time that I did something about this? I mean, I go you know, back to Oprah's speech from a couple of weeks ago at the, you know, the Golden Globes, you know, it's a, a new day is coming. Do you sense that as well, that uh, when you're looking at the harassment that's gone on and the mistreatment that's gone on for years, that maybe, that maybe we are turning a page here? I mean, I hope, but I also don't want to get my hopes up because like I said, I'm so cognizant of the risks that women take when they come forward and when they break the silence. Um, they risk their socioeconomic position. They risk their social political power. There's just such a discrepancy in power. Um, and that is a silencing mechanism for a lot of women. So I'm hoping that as the culture becomes more aware and more consciousness raising um, happens in relation to the plight of women um, in our society, that there will be a shift, but it has to be a cultural shift. There have to be mechanisms in place to encourage that cultural shift, like preventative education, uh, like awareness, and all that sort of thing. So hopefully this is a step in the right direction and more women continue to come forward. Um, but if that's to happen, we have to let women know that we believe them and that they aren't going to be demonized or shamed or ignored or discredited in the court of pub- public um, opinion, that we will say, you know what, we believe you, and that's where the buck stops. Always a pleasure having you on the program, Catherine. Thanks so much for this today. Thank you for having me. Take care. Catherine Gibbons, of course, anti-human trafficking coordinator, public educator with Halton Savas. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Today, uh, right now, we begin a feature that uh, I know you're going to be interested in because we're getting to that time of year where we start talking about getting your income tax done, about putting uh, savings together, uh, what are you going to do about retirement? All the things that scare the daylights out of us so we never want to talk about them, right? But you need to. You have to because, uh, well, let's face it, we have to concern ourselves about our financial situations. So the topic is called Managing Your Wealth, and uh, we're going to uh, have a number of programs over the next uh, few days talking about different aspects of this. Uh, this is the beginning of this week-long series on Managing Your Wealth. We're going to talk about financial literacy and uh, your financial well-being, or lack thereof, maybe. Uh, as the case might be. And uh, to join us, uh, to get the, the ball rolling here, we're so pleased to welcome Prachi Duda with the Mobile Investment Specialist with First Ontario Credit Union, uh, Credit Asset Management. Thanks for coming in today, by the way. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Bill. Uh, there's so much to talk about here. I was mentioning in the preamble just before you came into the studio that as soon as you start talking about some of these topics, some people are fearful. I mean, this, they, they look at financial advisor meetings the same as they look at going to the dentist. Like, oh, I know I have to do it, but I'm not really comfortable. And it's because we just don't know an awful lot. 
about what's going on. But that's basically why we need to talk to people like you, isn't it? Exactly, Bill. Like we know, we realize like most people spend more time planning a vacation than their own finances. And we realize the first big step is booking that first meeting. You know, as financial advisor, it's important that clients understand the products and service they're investing in and they have the right investment mix, what their investment goals are, and what products suit their needs. You know, we want to make sure we take the time, however long it takes, that we answer all the questions. Because the biggest thing is there's no such thing as a bad question. You know, the key is asking questions to best understand the investor so we can help them understand the products that they're investing in. You know, our goal is to learning about the clients, you know, their goals, dreams, and any future possible life events. You know, buying their first home, getting married, having children, retirement, and, you know, leaving something for our loved ones after. And from there, creating a plan to make sure that their goals happen financially and when they need it. A lot of that, though, comes down to to that product information. And I want to talk to you about that for a couple of minutes because, like I say, you know, we think, okay, I make money, I put it in the bank, I pay the mortgage if you have a house or rent, whatever the case might be, maybe there's a car payment in there. But we we have to get geared into this idea about thinking for the future uh, and what we're going to be doing. And uh, a lot of the time we just don't have that product information about what's available to us when we sit down with an advisor. You know, I'm sure you... From time to time, perhaps you'll sit down with somebody, yeah, I want one of those uh, RSP things I heard about. Give me one. That may or may not be the best product for you. I mean, there's so many different choices right now. You really need to sit down with an expert to be able to find out exactly what's available before you decide which what's going to be best for you. Definitely, Bill. Like at First Ontario, our team of advisors have all the appropriate training, accreditation, and keep up to dates with all the latest investment and news and trends, you know, as well as... The financial goals of our clients have are many of the same that we have for ourselves. We're, you know, our team is an, you know, we're a team. And that's important because um, it's just as much that they know about me as, you know, they divulge to me about their financials. You know, talking about finances can be difficult. And I want to make sure and our team that there's nothing that they can't tell us because the more we know, the better off we could help them in their futures to realize their goals and dreams. Well, that's about that developing that relationship, isn't it? That just, uh, again, to use the example of the going to the dentist or the doctor, uh, of course you're going to be nervous if you don't know them and they don't know you. But if you start developing a rapport, and I've found that in, in all the segments I've done with uh, you and your, your, your staff at, uh, at First Ontario Credit Union uh, and Credit Asset Management Groups, that you develop that rapport and that relationship. I mean, you might spend the first five minutes of the meeting talking about the Super Bowl this weekend, and but that builds up a, a, a credibility and a relationship, and then you can get into the nuts and bolts, and it puts me as a customer at ease. And that's that's probably the first thing you have to do is make me feel comfortable that hey, this is a nice person sitting across from me, and they really know what they're talking about. And that's the biggest thing. Like kind of like what you said last, it's you know it's about a team approach. You know, um, a lot of times most. Of all my members, um, they know just as much as me, my family, what I'm, my interests are as much as they, you know, we have that conversation. And, you know, it's more just kind of like what we're having now, just an easy conversation. Because the thing is, is that, you know, if you just talk about finances, it's it's hard. How do you open up? How does someone open up and say, here you go, this is what I have and, you know, this is what I want. You know, that's why we say it's most important thing to our team and to me is being able to understand our clients uh, 
help them understand the products available and which ones are right for them. Because, you know, just like anything, our members are experts in what their field is. And just like we are in that, it's, it's just the exchange of ideas for them to understand what we offer and how we could get their goals and dreams and make them happen. Well, and to go to that end, I mean, that's that's one of the reasons why we're so glad that you guys at First Ontario Credit Union are available to do this. First of all, you guys have got a reputation in the community and people know who you are and what you guys stand for as a as a company. And and uh, and that helps. So for somebody who's just getting started in this and looking for advice, uh, that's a name that's going to come front of mind like that. It's really important for, for the public and for that potential client to, to understand that, hey, this is a very reputable agency. You guys have a track record of success and of helping people, and you're local. I mean, you're a Stony Creek guy, and here you are still in the community, still working in this community and helping people. That helps create that relationship, doesn't it? Exactly. Like, you know, a lot of things that we talk about is many things I grew up in. Like I, like you mentioned, I grew up in Stony Creek all my life, and uh you know, and married to children now. So, you know, as in, you know, for our members, you know, we, a lot, they come to us and they say, you know, they come and say, oh, my brother is invested in this and, you know, is this going to be right for me? And the biggest thing we always say is what right, what might be right for him may not always be right for you. Our approach is to first explain a diverse portfolio is always the best solutions. You know, mutual funds are a collection of stocks and market investments that are packaged to be diversified themselves, but we've seen the ups and downs of the market. So that doesn't always mean they come without any risk. You know, all investing has risk. And if your definition of risk or risk appetite is based solely on future value, well, then mutual funds may not be right for you. You know, at the end of the day, we want to make sure our members are able to sleep at night and not worry about their investments. Um, the goals that, of, that's going to change from individual to individual, isn't it? Exactly. Some people are okay with that, and I, I know a lot of folks that are. You're absolutely right. They're just going to they're going to be up night worrying, like, oh my god, the stock market went down today. Oh, the the value of the dollar went down. What's that going to do to my portfolio? What's that? And they're going to be on the phone. You know, it's eleven thirty at night. Pratchy, what's going on? What's going? On? But so you have to tailor that package for that individual. Exactly, and that's the whole thing. It's that building that relationship. And, you know, we always want to make sure we sit down every year to see what's going on. What's, you know, is there anything that's changed? Because, you know, life is tricky. You know, something may pop up that you may not realize the year before. And, you know, the goal is to make sure the biggest hot question is, you know, making sure you live comfortably in retirement, you know, having enough for your children's education and buying that house you know, for your, of your dreams and creating a plan and investment product for those. And that's why it's, it's all about constant communication and um, that relationship between our clients and the advisors. Because I got a, a list of acronyms. I'm not going to start going down the list. We'd be here till 3 o'clock in the afternoon doing that, about RRSPs, about lifts, about this, et cetera. And, and a little knowledge sometimes can be a dangerous thing because you figure, oh, yeah, that's, that's probably where I want to invest the money. But you, or you mentioned education, which is obviously a very important element. You want to make sure you've got money for university for your kids or post-secondary school, whatever it might be. Uh, and I know there are, there are specific funds for that, and that may or may not be the best vehicle. So you really have to have that conversation about what my, if I'm a potential client, what my goals are. You know, do you want to send your kids to university? Well, okay, you better get money aside. Do you want to retire, etc. I mean, you know, you, I guess you have to have numbers in mind, and then. You take all that, my dreams, my wishes, my aspirations, and sit down and start crunching some numbers and say, well, here's, it's, it's, it's somebody, the same as somebody going to buy a car, right? 
Exactly. Like, what, what do you need a car for? Well, I have to do this. I have to do heavy lifting. I have to carry stuff. Or maybe I'm only going to drive it once a week. Well, that's going to determine exactly what kind of car I'm going to get. Same thing when I go for my financial advice. And the same thing. It's like, you know, the biggest thing we realize as, you know, people get older is, you know, that mortgage that they expect 25 years, you know, they're expecting that to be paid off by the time we retire. And a lot of times they're not. And, you know, we need to make sure that we equate for that when they do retire and they do have that reduction in income. And the biggest thing I always say is it's kind of like you hit it on the head is education. You know, we want to make sure that we educate all our members of the different options that First Ontario has and then build a portfolio that suits their risk tolerance to reach those goals. And there's no better satisfaction helping someone save for their dreams and goals and having them attain them because by helping them learn about their financial options and investment, it's just as important because, um, you know, they need to know, what they need to kind of, um, the better they understand, the better educated, you know, they're going to have more control over their financial freedom. Different people are going to take different tax toward this, I would think too, Prachi, as you sit down and, and determine exactly what kind of package is going to be good for them and what kind of portfolio is going to be good for them. I, I guess there are people that like to be hands-on and they like to watch it and look at it every week and say, how's this going? How's that? I, I, on the other end of the spectrum, I'm sure you run into people that say, look, we'll, we'll do this conversation once a year or as necessary, etc. You look after stuff. You're the experts. And, 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 and that's, I guess, one of the things that you have to determine exactly what that person's comfort level is with how much uh, control they want to have over this and, and how much knowledge they have about the product in the first place. Exactly. And, you know, the biggest thing is the key thing I always mention to all our clients is, you know, miss making sure taking for us advisors, taking the time to listen. Um, that's a big component. You know, by that we could understand the goals and the needs and what's important to them. And a lot of times for us as advisors, cu- realizing things that they may not realize that may come up and then answering those questions because we want to make sure for our clients that they feel comfortable and comfortable in what they, any questions that they leave that they understand and that when they do leave that they can do this. You know, everyone needs an advisor and who's committed to building a relationship with that person. And um, the biggest thing is everyone has to start with somewhere and we don't want people to think they need a certain amount. We want to make everyone has goals and dreams and we want to make those a reality. And the biggest thing we always tell our members is that the earlier you start, the better. And, and as well as, you know, as well staying top of your portfolio and your changing needs because kind of like we go, but go back to the communication piece, you know, we want to meet every year. So if something does change, we can make those tweaks to making sure those you're still on track. But you're always going to hear from people, and I'll bet you do on a, on a pretty regular basis, saying, uh, you know what, it, it's too late. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I'm on the north side of 50 right now. I never did start when I should have. I, I'm just going to have to muddle along. Is, is it true that it's, it's never too late to get started? It is true, because the whole thing is like, you have to look at it this way is that, you know, right now you're working, you're making X amount. But the thing is, when you come into retirement, you know, it's uh, for most people, you know, there's the the great pensions and everything may not be that case. And the whole thing is, is that what do you have saved for when you are in retirement? And the whole thing is we don't want members or clients to live off their house value. We want to make sure that you know, they have the proper amount saved for them to live comfortably because, you know, when it comes to retirement, you want to be able to have those trips, you know, spend time with family. And that whole point is 
that financial freedom goes back to just saving and every little bit helps and it's never ever too late and it's uh, it's interesting you know when you hear stories about well you know I made a killing on the stock market or my portfolio just went up uh, those are risk takers and and that may not be for everybody right slow but steady sometimes is the best way to approach something like this exactly like i always like to say you know my you know my brother he invests he does his thing is not exactly necessary for me and that's the biggest thing is that you don't want to just you get your investment advice from someone friend and just say, okay, I'm going to put this amount in and see how it goes. Because people have, that's their hard-earned money. And um, we want to make sure we stretch every dollar possible. And the best way to do that is to get that professional advice and to say, and, and see in black and white. Because this way, you know, what we do is there's historically, it's proven to help you get to where you want to be. And that's what we want to do. It's uh, it's the first step is is to to make that appointment and to sit down and discuss this and 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 give them an overview and talk to them and and I guess no holds barred I mean tell them hey what do you want to do in retirement do you want to travel you know do you want to stay here do you want to sell your house and buy something else uh, that's all information but you know and from that you guys get to work and you put pen to pencil and start coming through with things and it starts with that first call. Uh, so know what you're talking about, and if you don't have great expertise in this, and I think that's probably most of us, really, Pratchy, uh, talk to somebody who does. And those are those are the folks, of course, at First Ontario Credit Union. But the financial advisor is that first step, and create that relationship, and then from there, uh, see what happens. Exactly, like many of our uh, um, meetings that we do have, they're an hour or two because the whole thing is there's never a set time for when we have that appointment because you know we could never determine okay, we're only going to give you this amount of time. A lot of times it could be on multiple different occasions. We want to make sure we get it right and we're willing to do to make sure that that member feels comfortable and what the plan is and that those dreams could come into reality as well as that they're being listened to. And sometimes just having that conversation is that first step. And um, we could always have, we'll always have many, we could have meetings after that to get back to the nitty and gritty. But the whole thing is that conversation because that's the biggest step. And I think you've eased that anxiety. You've told us what, that this is not that difficult, that you just lean on the expertise of people like you to get it done. Thanks so much for coming in today. It's great talking with you. Thank you, Bill. Prachi Duda is a mobile investment specialist. You can reach him at First Ontario Credit Union. Credit Asset Management. Uh, tomorrow at 11 o'clock, we'll have another phase of this about managing your wealth. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.